Welcome to The Author Show, where we feature new authors and books, from fiction to self-help and everything in between. You'll find it all at theauthorshow.com. That's theauthorshow.com. And now let the show begin. Hi, this is The Author Show, and I'm your host, Linda Thompson. Before I introduce our guest, just a quick reminder that selected interviews are available in our iPhone app, which can be downloaded in the App Store, as well as on TV on the Roku channel and Amazon Fire TV. Our app name on all platforms is The Author Show. If you're a fan of murder mysteries and suspense thrillers, you won't want to miss a minute of today's interview. Stephen L. Bruneau has released his debut novel, the MIT Murders, and just reading the synopsis gave me cold chills. Stephen joins us to share more about the MIT Murders. Stephen, welcome to The Author Show. Hi, Linda. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Stephen, will you please give us a quick overview of the MIT Murders? Sure. The story starts with Susan Pierce, who's the only undergrad on an MIT Alzheimer's brain research project and her professor is a fellow named Hans Berger. Along the way, Susan and Professor Berger have an inappropriate relationship that ultimately goes sour. Later on, they get some promising results from the research, and Susan starts to think that the professor may be manipulating the data in order to accelerate getting funding for their startup. So as tension heightens between the two of them, the stakes start to grow higher and a battle of wills ensues between Susan and Professor Hans Berger. Eventually, she comes up with an ingenious plan to remove him without compromising the research or the company or herself, but she doesn't foresee some of the unintended consequences. So suddenly, some of her closest friends start turning up dead in a series of sensational serial killings that stymie police and captivate the public. This is where Demasi Augustin comes in. He's the first-generation son of Haitian immigrants who's risen through the ranks of the Cambridge PD to become the chief homicide investigator. His investigation takes him from New England to California and as far as Europe. A lot of unexpected twists and turns occur along the way, and of course there's a strong dose of action and suspense, which I think will keep the reader turning pages to the very end, as Demasi seeks to solve the mystery and bring the perpetrator to justice. A chilling climax will give the reader goosebumps as they close the book. Wow, that gave me goosebumps right there. So tell me, where did the idea for your plot come from? Well, (laughs) it's kind of funny in a way. It started with me being stuck on a plane on a tarmac somewhere about two years ago, and I had finished reading the book that I had with me, and we were stuck on that tarmac for three hours. And I had no way to escape the plane. You couldn't get up, you couldn't walk around, you couldn't do anything. So... The only way I could take my mind out of that plane was to do something with a pad of white paper I had and the pen I had in my briefcase. So I thought to myself that I would simply write a descriptive paragraph and try and make it as real as possible and put myself in this particular scene. And that effort that day turned out to be the prologue for the MIT murders. So actually the beginning scene occurred before I developed the plot and I enjoyed writing it so much. I then continued pretty much every morning, seven days a week, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning for maybe an hour as kind of an entertaining thing to do. And I developed the plot from there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I've got to admit, I've heard a lot of um, how people come up with their plots, but that's a new one. So do you think that there is any ideal type or age of reader for the MIT murders? 
Well, it's funny, you know, uh, because of my real job and the business I'm in, I have uh, hundreds of clients, all ages, and funny, but one demographic that's really received the book well that surprised me a little bit was women that are my age or up. I'm 67 years old, and I've gotten quite a bit of positive feedback. I actually was worried about that demographic. They might think something was wrong with me when they started reading the, uh, the serial killings, but they've been um, wonderful. But I think people of any age who enjoy mysteries and suspense, I think would enjoy this book. Since the MIT Murders is your first book, do you think that there is any other author that might have had an influence on your style of writing? Oh, definitely. You know, when I was a kid, I got hooked on the Hardy Boys as a way to expand my vocabulary and entertain myself. Of course, back then, you know, we had three channels in black and white TV. So I spent a lot of time sitting on the couch or lying on my bed with the windows open and the air blowing around in the springtime and reading the Hardy Boys and transporting my mind somewhere else. And when I finished with all of those, I read every Nancy Drew and so forth. So as an adult, I kind of went on in that same genre because I have to do so much technical reading. An escape from me was continuing with the idea or the genre of mysteries and suspense. And while the Hardy Boys and, and Nancy Drew were kind of a simple version of that, as an adult, I've enjoyed authors like James Patterson, Vince Flynn, Lee Childs, David Baldacci, Nelson DeMille, people like that. I enjoy that, that genre. You've got some very interesting characters in your book. Are they based on real people or are they pure fiction? They are pure fiction, although there might be a couple of composites that I've channeled for certain parts of certain people, but there's really no one at all similar. I have a, a friend uh, who actually is a professor at MIT, and he said, who's that modeled after? And I said, it's not modeled after anybody. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, any of these characters return to us in a sequel or maybe even a series? Well, I'm glad you asked that because as I sit right now, I'm at 70,000 words on the fourth book in the series. And the second book in the series is going to be published, I would guess, this June. So the ongoing character is Demasi Augustine, and I use him as a vehicle to try and tell my story. So I develop different characters around him, and his own life situation is evolving. But he's the constant that I've chosen to go with. So the next book is called The Scotus Affair, which is a political thriller, and it should be out in June. And in order to accommodate some of the requests, you know, I had a number of people say, well, why couldn't you give Damasi a romantic interest? And I'm sorry to say I did not give him a romantic interest in the SCOTUS affair, but there is a wonderful romance story in it that transcends four decades, and it's interwoven with the uh, political thriller aspect of the story. And of course, Damasi gets involved as well. But I'm afraid if readers like this character and they like this series, they're going to have to wait until the fourth book that I'm finishing up now before they, they get a romantic interest for Damasi. <laughs> That's quite a teaser and a come on. So tell me, your book cover for the MIT murders gives me cold chills. Would it be giving too much away to ask how the rat on your book cover relates to your story? Well, uh, not really. Really, that was just a symbolic of MIT and the research project. And there's a fair amount of science in the book. Many years ago, I had a client that got his PhD at Harvard Medical School, and he actually did some early stage research in protein kinase base C and Alzheimer's and things like that. So I had a little bit of a layman's background in some of that. And some of the key scenes do take place in the lab. And it was just meant to be kind of a scary lab mouse that would intrigue people. They'd see the title of MIT and they'd see the lab mouse and they, they would maybe want to pick it up and see what it was about. I think it's an eye-catching cover. It absolutely is. 
We've established that you love to read mysteries as a young guy. So did you always picture yourself as a published author? No. <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, really when I started writing a couple of years ago on that plane, that was my first real attempt since high school. So that's been five decades. And I actually, as a young high schooler, maybe a freshman, I made my own attempt at writing a Hardy Boys book. And it was written out longhand. It was probably a couple hundred pages of longhand. And no one ever saw that except for my mother and myself. And I was very proud of it. And it was an interesting uh, exercise for a young kid. And I think it helped me in a lot of ways. And I've done professional writing over the years as far as articles within my industry and that type of thing, but never a fictional novel until this time. It's something that I always had in the back of my mind. I thought maybe as I approached retirement, it would be fun to do. I find it extremely entertaining, so it's something I plan to continue. Will you share with us some of the comments you've received from readers of the MIT murders? Sure. I don't know what I'm allowed to say or what I'm not allowed to say as far as other people's names, but a number of people, including uh, Blue Ink on a professional review, have said that my writing is very reminiscent of James Patterson. I've had numerous readers email me or talk to me on Facebook and say the same thing. I've had a couple people say that they've read currently popular best-selling novels, and I won't mention the authors, and they said, I actually enjoyed yours more. So I took that as quite a compliment, and I'm very flattered by that type of a comparison. I would be too, and I've got to tell you, I've read a part of your book so far, and I've got to admit, it's every bit as good as some of the big names that you've mentioned. So tell me, is there a moral of the story in the MIT murders that you would like your readers to remember? Well, you know, it's funny. A friend asked me when I was in this process, and he said, is this going to be just another cop story? And I guess you could think that if you just looked at the cover or read a quick synopsis. But after they read it, I don't think they thought that at all. To me, like any good mystery or suspense story, it's got plenty of twists and turns and unexpected occurrences and so forth. But I also think that what makes this book unique is that the story is a mechanism to allow the reader to think about contemporary issues. So, for example, is it okay to bend the truth for what you perceive to be the greater good? And if so, well, who judges? I mean, who decides what's the greater good? Who decides if your judgment is correct? And what about the unintended consequences? So there are some obvious examples of this in the book. But if you dig a little deeper and you peel back the layers, there's some more subtle examples of this. I'll give one example. Since the Alzheimer's research in the story is so promising and they have some excellent early results, and they're attracting venture capital, was the professor justified in maybe nudging the data a little bit to accelerate getting that funding or to keep the project alive? Because after all, Alzheimer's is a horrible disease. It touches many families. His motivation might have been very pure in terms of what his ultimate goal was. But arguably, it was his actions that started this whole chain of events that turned out to be quite tragic. So there's a lot of contemporary issues that run throughout the book. And I had readers comment that they found that to be very interesting and thought-provoking as well. Stephen, will you please read a short excerpt from the MIT murders for our listeners? Sure. I'm going to fight back, Susan said triumphantly. I'm going to take Berger down, and I figured out how to do it without having to confront him about data fraud or taking down PKC Group or the others along with him. How, Liz asked. The only way to give PKC Group a chance to stay alive and maybe reinvent itself is to take Berger out for reasons that have nothing to do directly with the research or PKC Group itself. The cause of his removal must be something specific to him. 
with no ill reflection on the research. I think I have something, something so powerful and possibly so swift that it will blindside him and destroy him. And it will happen in a vacuum with no impact on anything else. That's why I'm excited, Liz. Okay, okay, girl, what in the hell are you talking about? Have you watched the news the past few months, Liz? It was right in front of my nose and I didn't see it, now I do. What, Susan, what do you see, what is it? All across the country, powerful, untouchable men are being taken down almost overnight and removed from businesses or positions of power with their reputations ruined and their careers crushed. The men are gone, but the companies continue on, at least in most cases. They continue on without them, as if they never existed. That would be the perfect scenario for Berger. Think of it, Liz. Bill O'Reilly, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, and there's hundreds more. I've researched it. I'm going to take Berger out for sexual assault. It's the perfect scenario. The climate is ripe for it. The angel investors will run in the other direction. They'll move quickly to dump Berger if a credible claim is made in this environment. They're not going to run away from their investment. They're not going to want to run away from PKC Group. They'll probably find someone else to run it, but Berger will be gone. I might even be able to get back involved in the research again at some point and help straighten things out. Liz had to hand it to Susan. It was a brilliant, ballsy strategy. You think you can mount a credible accusation? Yes, if you help me. Me? How so? Look, Liz, I said, I've looked into a lot of these cases. They're mostly he said, she said. The very nature of the situations are that no one else is usually around, just the abuser and the victim. Can I provide a viable case in a court of law? Probably not, but I don't have to. Can I mount a credible case in the court of public opinion with the board of PKC Group and in the MIT community? You bet your ass I can, and I will. Will you help me, Liz? Oh my gosh, that is definitely an edge of the seat excerpt. So I want to know now, where can we learn more about you? And where can we purchase the MIT Murders? Well, the MIT Murders can be purchased at brunobooks.com. That's my last name, B-R-U-N-E-A-U, the French spelling, brunobooks.com. You can go there and you can scroll down and, and buy the book in paperback or hard copy or on any of the major ebook vendors. We've been talking with Stephen Bruno, author of The MIT Murders. Stephen, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you today, and I want to thank you for sharing your debut book with us. I do hope you'll come back again when you release book two. I would love to come back, and thank you so much for having me on, Linda. It's been a real pleasure for me as well. Excellent book, a page turner. I couldn't put it down, and I read it in two days. Lots of twists and turns, a strong showing by this new author. It had so many twists and turns, it kept me on the edge of my seat until the end. Well, that was a couple of reviews for the MIT murders, and if they have you eager to start reading, please visit brunobooks.com and order your copy today. And please share this interview with your friends so that they too may become acquainted with our author. And remember, the author show may be accessed at any time at theauthorshow.com. Plus, selected interviews can also be found on major platforms like Amazon Fire TV, the Roku channel, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, and many more. Whether you're an author who would like to be featured or a reader in search of new books, theauthorshow.com is a really great place to start. Thanks for listening to The Author Show. Find out more about authors and their work at theauthorsshow.com. Theauthorsshow.com. Tune in next time to another great author on The Author Show.